And the winner is Lee Grant in Shampoo. Welcome to this episode of Categorically Oscars, the award-envious podcast all about the Academy Awards. I'm Chris. And I'm Cal. And this week we are getting into uh, one of our most popular categories and decades, Actresses of the 70s. Specifically, we'll be talking about the Best Supporting Actress race of 1975. And this was your pick. Why did you decide on this uh, category and year? Uh, several reasons, really. Um, the first being that I wanted to rewatch Nashville uh, because it, I had seen it a long time ago and really enjoyed it. Um, so I wanted to see if that held up. Um, also, Shampoo and Once Is Not Enough, I think, are fairly atypical for Oscar nominees. Um, and they're mostly about women, which I think is often welcome. We've got no supportive wife performance among this group which tends to be the most common trope of a supporting actress role um and i'd also never seen farewell my lovely um and these performances i think are all very different so yeah i thought it'd be interesting to talk about this group well definitely a very varied group um in these nominees and i hadn't seen any of these four films so i was very excited uh, to get all these crossed off the list, even once is not enough. Uh, <laughs> and if, what did you think about the overall quality? Um, pretty varied, um, <laughs> as well. I think that um, I think the quality of the performances were overall quite high. The quality of the films themselves, uh, well, I guess we'll get to that. <laughs> um, there are two. There's two pretty awful movies in this group, I have to say. But yeah. yeah. So the nominees were Ronnie Blakely and Lily Tomlin for Nashville, Sylvia Miles for Farewell, My Lovely, Brenda Vaccaro in Jacqueline Susan's Once Is Not Enough, and the winner Lee Grant in Shampoo. So let's start with. Um, Sylvia Miles turning in another very short performance um, and parlaying it into an Oscar nomination. Yeah, and, and this is a remake of uh, the film from 1944, which was also called Murder My Sweet. Um, and this stars Robert Mitchum as Marlowe. Um, and in this period, you've got Elliot Gould played um, Marlowe in The Long Goodbye, which is a great film, actually, in an Altman film too. We're going to talk about Altman today. Um, but it does seem as if Raymond Chandler was on a bit of a comeback. Um, but what did you think of the decision to make most of this story a flashback? Um, well, that's kind of a trope of the genre in a lot of ways, isn't it? Um, 
the to have the to give the um main character the main private detective an excuse to kind of gush exposition and and um pithy noirish lines uh and then we come back in you know at the end to the present to see how it all plays out so you know as a kind of trope and as a setup for the finale and like piecing all the puzzle together um i thought it was i thought it was fine yeah i it just kind of surprised me i thought you know, I kind of forgot we were in the flashback and then it came back to the present day. And I was thinking, oh, all of that's been a flashback. Um, but it does it does fit in with, with that, as you said. But I think one thing that doesn't fit in is the production values of this movie look very, very second rate. Um, the art direction, the costumes, the casting, to me, it all felt like they haven't particularly thought about what they want to achieve beyond maybe just a passable version of the of the 1944 film because it looks like it was made in 1975 mm-hmm. and it isn't transporting enough to distract from the sense that too many of the people involved in the movie and behind the scenes are maybe over the hill and past their best. Um which is what I got from this. And I think also that includes Robert Mitchum. Um, I thought he was pretty awful in this. And what is going on with that voiceover? It, it sounds like somebody strapped him mm-hmm. to a chair in the studio and forced him to read the lines. Um, I know. It's just shocking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, he's, he's definitely phoning it in um, pretty heavily in this and i i haven't seen apparently he played marlo again yeah uh, a few years after this in an adaptation of the big sleep so uh, i haven't seen that so i don't know if he um changed his tune or if he just kept going in this vein but i kind of i kind of felt that the over the hillness of most of the cast and the kind of overall um dreariness of the production values kind of uh translated well into the story which was you know kind of gave it a kind of dingy dirty edge and i don't know if that was intentional or if this everybody was just lazy but either way um i kind of liked the slightly trashy uh feel that it gave the whole thing i did like the music i have to say um that that comes in at the beginning I thought that was really effective. Yeah. But at no point did I ever believe we were in the 40s. Well, even even with the constant references to Joe DiMaggio to keep us um to keep us in 1941. Yeah. Yeah, which is not in the original film, is it? I think I think that's something that was added. Um Yeah. They're obsessed with Joe DiMaggio's hit streak. <laughs> <laughs> um but I think also, I mean, I didn't particularly care for the original movie, so which some people think is kind of a classic, but it, for me it's got problems. And I think one of them being the character of Velma, it just feels very predictable that Charlotte Rampling is going to turn out to be Velma because her earlier scene in the film seems to have no other consequence to it really. It felt like they were placing a lot of value on that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think they would have done that if she wasn't going to turn out to be have a, 
a major impact later on. So I think that's the problem with the original script, um, that it feels like her character's got to come back and the only way that she can do that is to be the woman he's searching for all along. Yeah. Yeah, that wasn't exactly a shocking twist. And of course, she is also the only uh, young, attractive, femme fatale-like actress in the whole story. So, you know, who else could it be? It's not like they're just suddenly going to introduce a new actress playing a new character in the last five minutes. That wouldn't uh, that wouldn't make any sense. Um, so yeah, she as soon as she was on screen, kind of vamping it up a bit, and then immediately off screen again. I was like, ah, uh huh, yeah. I think we just found Velma. Yeah. Did you find the film sexist? I mean, certainly it doesn't paint uh, its female characters in a particularly flattering light, no. Um, all of them are either, uh, you know, dragon ladies, as as Marlowe puts it, or, you know, pathetic alcoholics, or just, or, you know, brothel uh, madams, or prostitutes. Yeah, that's pretty much the only roles for women in this, or teenage runaways. <laughs> Yeah, the brothel madam did remind me of, uh, you know, in Seven Beauties, the prison warden woman. Mm-hmm. It's definitely kind of going for that. Um, but I guess if you rewatch film noirs from the 40s, there's probably similar, similarly sexist stuff and the idea of the femme fatale. But oh, for sure. I thought it this maybe came across in a little bit of a nasty way. Um which I didn't really appreciate, but it is. I mean, the the, the female characters are um, pretty low, morally, um, and it it although it is a different you know role for Sylvia Miles in this than we saw in Midnight Cowboy. It's still, you know, it's not a million miles away from it. No. Actually, it's 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 almost kind of the logical progression in a lot of ways of that character who is, you know, spends too long clinging to the illusion of youth um, until eventually she uh, just kind of collapses like a dying star and ends up, you know, like Jesse in this film. That's a lovely way to put it, like a dying star. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it did kind of feel like she was that character was going to die eventually because um, people were popping the clogs left, right, and center. They are these um, these villains didn't mess about in this, but I think like again we've got a performance where Sylvia Miles gets three scenes and between five and seven minutes to shine, and I think you know she even manages to shine when she's dead on the bed, which is like kind of weird. I mean, it you know, it's quite effective, that scene in a way. But I think like whereas in the case of Midnight Cowboy, she excels in a, you know, as a bit part of a feature with loads more to celebrate about it. Um, here within the confines of this film, which I think you preferred to me by the sounds of it, but I thought it was often pretty hopeless. I think she has even more of an impact because you sort of begin to wonder, 
who is Mrs. Florian and how cruel has life been to her. And you can see the backstory in the performance. Um, because through it all, she does seem like she's trying to help, you know. Um, um, I, I do think she's effective, but it's not very long again. Yeah. Well, it's a kind of character that can't really stay on screen too, too much. Um, because I think it would wear thin, even with an actress uh, like Sylvia Miles playing her and playing her quite well um, and making the most of the very limited screen time. Um, and yeah, she she was the only one who seemed to genuinely want to help, albeit in exchange for bourbon. Um, <laughs> and I, um, I suppose, I mean, I definitely wouldn't say I liked the film. Um, there was nothing much um, to it that made me feel... Um, like I was watching a classic noir, not even in a sense of it being a a kind of loving tribute. I didn't even get that. So, yeah, maybe I liked it a little bit better than you did, but not. I wouldn't. I don't think I'll ever watch it again. No, it was pretty dingy as a movie. Yeah, but I think she's the best thing about it. I think you know, there's a slovenly physical physicality to the performance you know um and it does get more interesting when she shows up so it's probably a shame for me that again this is a really small performance in a, what i think is quite a strong field um but she's definitely worth remembering yeah and i i would say more memorable and certainly more integral to the plot than she was in midnight cowboy um, where, you know, when, when we ranked 1969, I ranked her pretty low just based on the fact that she wasn't in much of it and didn't have a big impact. So that, um, this seems a little bit better in those senses in this film. So helped her out a little bit. Um, I guess before we leave the film, I wanted to mention that even though, um, Philip Marlowe was obsessive about Joe DiMaggio's hit streak, uh, you'd think they would have gotten... Um, the details of that right, but he mentions that DiMaggio hit safely in his 33rd game the same day Hitler invaded Russia, and that actually happened two days after DiMaggio hit safely in his 33rd game, so not sure. Oh, damn. Yeah, not sure why the screenwriters decided to not just make it his 35th game or not tie those two events together, but whatever. But they did get the calendar right, didn't they? They got in his office, yes, he had the proper calendar, and that was uh, that was nice. So shall we move on to Nashville? Let's. All right. Now, huge step up uh, <laughs> from Farewell, My Lovely, and I mean, uh, that's to be expected. It's Robert Altman doing what he does best, you know, corral a huge stable of character actors and guiding us through this ensemble piece um yeah i'd never seen the film before but i'm a huge fan of robert altman and uh yeah this was a great film it's just total chaos really isn't it like i think most of altman's movies were very chaotic um and that's why there are some people that you know are not a huge fan of his but i think pauline kale called nashville 
a new chapter in the great American epic. And it is one of these movies that feels great, you know, and a lot to do with that is the conception of the movie in the first place. Like it's a bit of a boyhood of its time in terms of innovation. Um, you know, many of the cast weren't actors. All of the characterization was contrived by the cast. Everyone was required to write and sing their own music. So as a collaborative project, this is Altman very much in maverick mode. And um, I think it's the results just stupendous. It's, it isn't like any other movie, you know, there's, there's, and there's something going on in every frame. It's the kind of film where every time you watch it, you'll notice something new. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the tagline on the poster uh, sums it up really well. The damnedest thing you ever saw. Um, and it contains, yeah, all of those Altman elements. At I think the best I've seen them, the improvisational nature, the collaboration with the actors and the um, constant movement, the kind of kinetic energy throughout the whole thing. Um, and yeah, just the controlled chaos um, of it all. And at the same time, within these events of, you know, these politically um, charged events, just these people acting. Well, we'll get to this again when we talk about a different film, but just acting in their own self-interest and barely noticing the bigger picture um, <laughs> all the time. It's, uh, yeah, it's wonderful. And I love his ability to get not only great performances, but also pretty great music out of these, uh, as you say, mostly non-actors. Yeah, I mean, some... the. <laughs> The For the Sake of the Children song. I think this is what I found interesting is that because, you know, with the, all the film being about spectacle and excess, but it, it is kind of a bit of a disquisition on country music and sort of like a reinforcement of conservative values. Um, and because the actors have been, you know, been tasked with writing their own music you get a different perspective on what people view country music as, even the purpose and the different melodies. But I think the song For the Sake of the Children, um, which is about, about this um, telling this woman to leave the married man alone or something like that, um, it does feel a bit of a piss take of, of um, <laughs> a traditional country music song, which, and I love country music, I'm a huge fan. But um, I think recently, you know, it's gotten a lot less conservative over the years. But I think um, I think the fact they allowed their actors, the actors in this film to write their own music does bring a different element and enriches the way you've got different perspectives on what country music even is. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I really, I'm not a huge fan of country music myself, but I did enjoy almost all of the music in this. Um, and I think it definitely, the, the actors and the people who are writing the music got country music really well. Um, and they definitely imbued it with, uh, at least at the time, the highly patriotic and highly religious feel uh, of a lot of 
popular country music at the time. And then you had kind of Keith Carradine um, coming in with the kind of more modern uh, take, which I thought was interesting. So as a kind of time capsule of country music, I even think the film succeeds, even though I think at the time actual country musicians were a bit dismissive. Yeah, because it doesn't portray the scene in a particularly great light. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I am a bit embarrassed because when I first watched Nashville, I thought that Keith Carradine's song was I'm Easy, uh, easy Like Sunday Morning. You know that other song? Mm-hmm. I thought it was the same song. Oh. It did win an Oscar. I'm not a huge fan of it, to be honest. I preferred um, Barbara Jean's songs. So, yeah, same. Yeah, I, it, yeah, you're right. I'm Easy won the Oscar, right? But yeah, I don't think I would have voted for it. Yeah. But having said that, I probably would have voted for Nashville in every other category it was nominated in. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't know about Best Picture because I love, I really like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, um, but I don't know. Now that I've seen this and only like 48 hours after watching it for the first time, it's uh, maybe in my current state I would vote for it. Yeah. I mean, I like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but I think that would probably be like bottom for me of all the Best Picture nominees. But it's, it's, I mean. Lots of people regard this as the best year ever, right? For best picture. I mean, I mean, it's it's hard to argue with that. Yeah. So, should we start with Ronnie Blakely? Okay. Because um, when I remember Ronnie Blakely's performance, um, I always tend to remember it as being more hysterical than it actually is. Um, and punctuating in terms of the breakdown, it's incredibly sad, but I wouldn't say what she's doing is overacting at all. Um, There's actually a fair amount of restraint in it. And she sings the hell out of the songs to begin with. Um, And again, I think they're probably the strongest songs lyrically on the soundtrack. And she was actually a singer, wasn't she? She wasn't an actress until this film. Yeah. Yeah, this was her film debut, right? Yeah. But I think the the vulnerability she gets into the performance and the sense that this woman has come way too far beyond what she thought she was going to have to endure as a as a country music artist. I think that just becomes very painfully apparent. I thought she was absolutely heartbreaking. Um and in an honest and non-showy way yeah yeah i agree there's there's too much of kind of the hysterical breakdown um kind of performances where it's very histrionic and very over the top um i'm thinking of people you know performances like louise rayner and in the great Siegfeld and stuff like that um which was obviously much before this and of course acting had become much more naturalistic by this point but um, I think it would have been very easy, especially for a, a uh, someone who'd never acted before, to go that route. But she really, yeah, portrays this tragic and uh, vulnerable collapse in a really, um, really effective way, really emotional way. You really feel the anguish she's going through at every point. Um, yeah, I think it's a great performance. 
Yeah, because the, the band start up, don't they, a couple of times, three <laughs> yeah. times, I think. And every time you're like, just please sing, please. And every time she just goes off on a tangent. But it's not, I mean, there is there are so many other ways that that scene could have played out that would be less good. Um, and that's from Blakely's, um, because of Blakely's work too, you know. it's It could have been really overcooked and it felt, quite appropriate um for what they wanted to say and i thought it was interesting that the the crowd were portrayed in a very negative and sort of unsympathetic way yeah that was surprising yeah i was expecting them to be more concerned instead of throwing things and booing when she left the stage that was really pretty shocking um but i don't know if she did any movies after this do you know if she did um, I think she had a few. Um, I think she was in Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember what her role in that was. But no, I think she did some more acting work after this, but maybe nothing uh, quite so, quite as big. Yeah, because it's interesting that Lily Tomlin has gotten so big and so um, famous since then. And um, Ronnie's kind of a forgotten actress in many ways. Yeah. What did you think of Tomlin? Um, also great. Um, I think that, um, again, she, she wasn't, she hadn't done too many movies before this either, right? Mostly television. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, she's the perfect Altman uh, actress, somebody who's inexperienced enough to bring that kind of naturalistic and improvisational quality to it. Um, I think she does really well. I really kind of believed her as this frustrated um, kind of mid-level. That was my read that she's kind of a mid-level star. She's not too, too famous, but she's definitely not struggling. Yeah. Um, But also, you know, she has this kind of unhappy home life where her husband is either absent or actively antagonistic. Yeah. where she's trying to connect with her children and he just is bored or not there. That was, you know, Ned Beatty playing, a you know, the role that he was born to play. Um, <laughs> and and then when she finally, you know, kind of gives in and, uh, and goes to bed with Tom, it really felt, um, it really felt natural for this character to finally hit that point where, you know, she just needs, you know, just uh, a roll in the hay or a quick connection with a with a young guy. Yeah, it was it was difficult to see her with the deaf children and um, having that character having to work through all of those issues by herself because, as you say, the husband has no idea how to navigate that that problem and doesn't seem to want to make any effort at all. So I think that felt like a really honest family situation and really well pitched. And it felt like she just had to get on with it, basically. But I thought she was at her best in the conversations and the liaison with Tom. Um, Because like her reaction when he doesn't even wait for her to leave to start lining up his next shag, you know, it wasn't like she was Mm -hmm. outraged. Because she kind of expected, I mean, nobody expects that, but she kind of expected that this was only going to be a one-off thing, I think. Um, 
but I, you know, rather than act hurt, um, she just sort of had this resigned, accepting look, and I think that really fit how she'd approached the character up until that point, because it is a very quiet and unsure role, um, and I think it's actually very valuable for the film because you do have so many outlandish performances in the film. And this is a nice, quiet one, honest, subtle characterization amongst all of these gung-ho sequences. Because the film, like, mm-hmm. you know, she, she manages to feel restless cause, and the film is restless and only really stops to have a song. You know, there's never any silence. There's never any non-dialogue until there's a song, basically. But I think... It, her characterization fit within the movie, even if it was very different to some of the other performances. Yeah, for sure. Um, I wonder, I had a slightly different um, interpretation of this scene where she's leaving, though, because I kind of um, saw him as blatantly lining up, as you say, lining up his next shag, but I thought he was trying to do it to get a reaction out of her um, because like he's maybe more used to women being more you know like the mary uh the other the woman he's sleeping with just muttering i love you i love you i love you mm. um and writing it on his mirror and you know blah blah and the uh the uh opal the british woman fawning over him and lily tomlin was just like yep that was fun um and now i'm gonna go and i think that kind of throws him uh, a bit and because he is because she's already in her own head out the door uh and I, I guess there is a bit of resignation to it too but i think i saw him in that scene as being kind of um yeah kind of thrown for a loop and uh wondering why she wasn't behaving like all of his other conquests yeah she de- it definitely does feel like she just wants to get out of there and she'd just be happy as long as nobody found out you know, it, right. yeah. Like, I suppose you could read it in, yeah. in both ways, yeah, but. Oh, for sure. I was mostly, because he like slams the phone down on the woman he's talking to as soon as, uh, as soon as Linnea's out the door, because he's like, all right, you've served your purpose, so you're done. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's such a dick. I mean, it's a pretty easy decision, though, isn't it, between him and Ned Beatty? <laughs> Keith Carradine <laughs> is certainly uh, very attractive in this, but yeah. Sure, yeah. But yeah, I thought, I mean, it's interesting. We've got two nominated performances from Nashville, although judging by Twitter, people um, would have liked more. But um, they're both extremely different from each other. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, they're two of many great performances uh, in this film. I don't think there's a single uh, bad performance in it. Even, I mean, even Jeff Goldblum, who never has a line, he just kind of rides around doing magic tricks, um, which is kind of how I picture Jeff Goldblum in real life. <laughs> uh, you know, even he's great. So, yeah, uh, really great. Um, really great stuff. And he had uh, Keenan Wynn as that poor uh, Mr. Green, the um, the guy with his wife in the hospital. Uh, 
is so such a sad character throughout and he has to deal with you know his his niece ignoring her mother and all that oh it's awful and then that guy comes up to him after he's found out she's died and says just starts yeah. rambling at him and it's just like the worst possible time <laughs> mm-hmm. i think yeah it, he did act that scene really really well yeah and still yeah because he's still trying to be polite even in the moment of the biggest pain in his life he's still trying to be like um not lose his temper not shout or anything he just <laughs> uh poor guy so from the sublime we go in the opposite direction yeah um jacqueline susan's once is not enough is it it, it's two n's in her surname so is it susan or suzanne i think it's suzanne yeah Ah, okay jacqueline suzanne's once is not enough um and i suppose they included her name in the title of the film because she had died uh that year the year before um so they wanted i guess they wanted audiences to know um that her work would live on yeah she died of uh, lung cancer to the in 74 mm. but um i mean danielle steels all all those tv movies have danielle steels the ring or whatever the name of the book is right yeah yeah i suppose they do um but i think uh, <laughs> But Jacqueline Suzanne, first author ever to receive, to have three consecutive number ones on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, and against critical opinion, the critics just hated her. Um, but the public ate it all up. <laughs> yeah, she uh, she enjoyed quite the success. And I'm kind of curious to read her novel um because the poster for this film and the tagline for this film promises a much more salacious story than is contained therein um and i i would like to read the source material to get to get the true trash um that i think is lurking under the surface here yeah because at the end i don't know what the once is not enough is a reference to in the book because it's when it comes in the, this movie it's pretty it's a bit of a damp squib it's sort of like oh that's why it's called that it's not because you're a nymphomaniac or something I, but um <laughs> I, I think in the actual book the ending january um goes off in a wild drug-fueled orgy or something um, and it's a very downbeat finale whereas here there's there's a little bit of hope for her, although she doesn't deserve any. <laughs> no, no. And and also, I mean, before we get into that, the, the way they shoehorn the title into the film <laughs> makes no sense because they're not using once in the sense of doing something one time. They're using it in the sense of something that happened in the past. Yeah. You know, we once had this. It doesn't mean you only had it one time. It means you had it in the past and you no longer do. So saying once is not enough in that context makes absolutely no sense. It's so, utterly stupid. 
the utterly stupid yeah um but i guess it's you know in keeping with the overall film but yeah the the film i think um the it makes the mistake of trying to class itself up um and i think that was even the reason um they hired guy green as the director because they wanted kind of a a british classy presence in the thing um and of course he had uh he was a cinematographer uh right who had worked with david lean so he had that pedigree um but and then of course you know the the writer for some reason is julius epstein who's who won the oscar for casablanca so there there's these like old hollywood kind of classy names attached to it but why you know this film is about as you say a nymphomaniac with a huge oedipal uh complex um well i i don't is it is it called that i don't know if it's a daughter with the father but the same basic kind of thing yeah um and why would you try to class that up why not just go with it and give us the salacious trashy story that it is yeah it is a shallow movie about a shallow world of people you know i'm where everyone's in the closet, um, women are sleeping with men to get promoted. It, like, I mean, I called Farewell My Lovely Sexist, but it, this one really does take the cake. Like, I, this is <laughs> the very weird sexual subtext to January um, and um, Linda saying, why don't you just ask your father if you can sleep with him and get it over with? And um, I just found that really odd, uh, almost as if Jacqueline Suzanne's been reading too much Freud, you know? Um, there was something about that element of it that felt both underthought and intentionally controversial, just for effect. Um, yeah. Like, I, I don't know why I'm having a personal negative reaction to Jacqueline Suzanne as a person, but I am... From watching this movie, I kind of am. Because Jackie Collins seemed like a lovely woman, but she wrote about this kind of thing too. So it doesn't mean you have to believe in it, but I somehow feel like Jacqueline Suzanne buys into elements of what she's discussing in in a way I don't like. Yeah, I, I can kind of see that. Um, I mean, I haven't actually seen or read anything else um, Jacqueline Suzanne related um, like, I haven't seen Valley of the Dolls, for example, um, but I, I do see where you're coming from. Yeah, it does kind of have that weird, um, almost um, condoning tone to the whole thing. Like, oh, this is fine. This is okay. Julius Epstein couldn't have got further away from Casablanca with this. Like, both, like, Casablanca was written, it was original, written as they went along. And this is adapted from a you know a pretty plotty novel um i think i think julius epstein's got a quite an old-fashioned view of what comedy is yeah in 1975 um you get really really silly throwaway punchlines that just come across as lame um and i think the 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 true comedy in the movie is unintentional 
I think like there's a flashback to um, January's motorcycle accident, <laughs> which is just hilarious. It's like there's some, clearly some dummy being thrown against a wall, just boom. Yeah. It's, it's just, oh, that was so funny. Um, and the entire sequence where Kirk Douglas is, um, who's who's really bad in this and trying very hard, um, he's wooing this, the millionaires, and you've got, you know, he's out, they're in some foreign country, I can't remember, and there's this like flamenco-like score, and he's like walking the Pekingese dog and the poodle. <laughs> it's just, just iconic, but in all of the wrong ways. Um, I found that hilarious. It, but it's very TV movie-ish from start to finish. Yeah, it's basically a glorified uh, TV movie that would be on in the middle of the day to put on while you're, I don't know, cleaning the house or drinking during the day or something like that. But I mean, I guess that's kind of what uh, Jacqueline Suzanne's target audience is, right? Um, People who are bored, maybe undersexed and looking for just a little, yeah, good old fashioned. Yeah, exactly. I have to imagine the original novel was more titillating than this. I mean, I mean... I have to say again, the poster shows two people in a naked, passionate, like, looks mid-coitus, and I don't even think they're in the movie, because they don't seem to correspond to anybody who's in the movie, so... I think there's that scene where um, he's, he's finally got it up, so to speak, and they're in the shower, and the door closes, and you see the, um the silhouettes of them in the shower. I think that's kind of the only moment, but that's misleading the movie because apart from that, there's no actual sex. In right. It. Yeah. Like not even when Kirk Douglas has finally sleeps with the wife and they just casually mention that afterwards that they've slept together uh, after they had an argument. It's kind of like, well, why didn't you get a bit steamy and that, you know, for that, you do get a sex scene with the two women and um, whatever Melina McCurry is doing in this <laughs> <laughs> in this movie. I just, uh, I mean, it was nice to see her. It's really nice to to see her, and she um, she certainly hadn't lost any of the glamour. <laughs> Definitely not, or the joie de vie. <laughs> um, but I mean, like we've said so much bad stuff about the movie. I actually think when Brenda Vaccaro is in the movie, it gets better. Um, oh, for sure. Because I think she really is a breath of fresh air. Um, the first scene is not great because I think, how can you sell the script? You know, the dialogue she's got in the first scene is not funny, but she sells it as best as she can. Um mm-hmm. And I admire how she played the character with a, a very goofy slant to her. And I think she's one of the few characters that the film would benefit by exploring further. Um, and, you know, and the poor woman deserved an Oscar for me just for um, having to act opposite Deborah Raffin. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, just terrible. Razzie level. Yeah. 
absolutely terrible but yeah i loved brenda vaccaro in this um i think as you say breath of fresh air and she seemed to be the only actor in the film who got that it's not supposed to be high drama it's supposed to be a romance novel yeah and she yeah has a great time with this character really um gives linda this energy and this um kind of unapologetic approach to her life even at the end when it collapses around her she's still like you know what i regret nothing um and i really liked that and i guess of all the characters she has the least to regret anyway so i guess that's all right but like her and yeah melina mccurry i loved seeing her in it even though you know she's only in it for a couple of minutes (laughs) um but yeah other other than the scenes with her and brenda i just yeah, couldn't uh, couldn't understand what the hell I was watching. I couldn't understand why Linda was that interested in being January's friend. Um, no, I didn't get that either. I don't know. I think that's a trope of other things like sitcoms and things like that where the uh, person who was formerly quote-unquote ugly and is now beautiful still kind of gloms on to the... Uh, popular pretty girl who january i guess was so linda now is an attractive um successful woman but she still has that kind of echo of her unpopular ugly past i don't know that i'm just spitballing but yeah uh she really does work hard to maintain a relationship with january you're right which doesn't make a whole lot of sense yeah i love when she says a man said to me, Linda, you've got 10 fingers like a mouth and a mouth like 10 fingers, <laughs> which is not a funny joke and doesn't really make sense to me, but she made it funny. I don't know. There was something about her. She she instantly elevates it when she's on screen. She even steals the scene at, uh, when they go to the funeral, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And I think at the scene at the apartment with Tom, is also quite desperate and there is some interesting characterization there. Yeah, I didn't like that the film suggested that she was ugly, which I don't think she is, and um, no. that because she's hung up on her appearance, that's why she's sleeping with, you know, everyone, every man, boy, dog. But it's... Um, <laughs> and it is a broad performance, you know, it's not particularly specific. It's it's broad humour, but I don't know. I thought she got across a lot of insecurities in the character. It wasn't only comic relief. And yeah, I thought she was great. What did you think of the scene um, where you can see the plane crash in, on the TV? Um, I actually thought that was one of the few clever bits of uh, staging in the film um because i mean the film does draw us to the tv just before that with a like tight shot where it says breaking news or breaking report or whatever it says um but after that where it's just in the background and we see um mike and deirdre's faces come up and then the twisted wreckage and everything i actually thought that was quite a clever bit of um yeah, a bit of clever bit of blocking and a clever bit of uh, ex- uh, moving the story forward. I actually like that. Yeah, 
I really liked it too. I think like, and also the fact that we know and she doesn't and we're watching her find out in a different way. I thought that was really clever. Um, but yeah, the, <laughs> the movie overall, pretty, pretty awful. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it could have been awful in a much more entertaining way. And I think that's what lets me down the most about it. Um, like it, it could have been the kind of movie that you would watch like on a bad movie night. Um, but like instead the swarm. Just, yeah, exactly. I would watch that again in a heartbeat, make a drinking game out of that. Um, but this one, I, yeah, it's just bad. It's not bad in a good way, which is unfortunate. So, um, all of these nominees lost, um, and as we will get to later in the comments, it wasn't a runaway um, this year because a lot of the prelims went to different actresses. So it was kind of a toss-up. But the ultimate winner was Lee Grant in Shampoo as one of several sexual conquests of Warren Beatty. Um, and this is another film with a lot of charged political uh, content going on in the background of um, the characters' lives that they don't really take much notice of. Yeah, I think the politics, we didn't really mention it much in Nashville, but I think the decision to set this film on the eve of Nixon's victory doesn't work as well. Um, And I think it didn't need that, honestly, even though I love this film. Um, I think... You know, you can tell that it's speaking to a particular era and a particular social group of people that um, are not very moralistic and probably Republicans. Um, So I'm not entirely sure that worked, but the whole thing as a whole definitely worked for me. I think that's a tale of upper middle class debauchery and deceit. I kind of ate it up and I thought it was very funny. Yeah, um, it was great. And it has, again, you know, I, t- I talked about how Nashville is kind of the best of Altman. And I think this is the has some of the best uh, elements of Ashby um, to make it work and make it pop. And um, I, I kind of um, didn't have too much of a problem with the backdrop of the Nixon victory. Um, I didn't think it needed to be so specific um as that yeah um i mean it was a pretty watershed moment in um in u.s history so there was that i suppose but at the same time the story would have worked any other day of the year so um not entirely necessary and they could have even kept most of the same scenes in it i mean there could be a republican party uh, get together that they could all go to there could have been plenty of other things uh, to make it work um, so it didn't need it but it was it was interesting that it was there um, but it's interesting that uh, when I was watching it I kept being reminded of um, the film What's New Pussycat um, which uh, Warren Beatty was originally supposed to be in and kind of with a similar character that ultimately was played by Peter O'Toole, um, just a young man who women cannot help but sleep with. Yeah. So 
uh, it's kind of nice to see him finally get to play that, which I think he saw himself as. Oh, I think definitely. Um, but I think it's interesting that the longer it goes on, it feels like he's the conquest. Um, you know, I love the idea of Warren Beatty renowned as a womanizer playing what seems like a womanizer here but the longer it goes you know the more you kind of realize that he's a bit of a henpecked weakling of a man um he's not he's not really in control of any of the sexual encounters the women are sort of using him in a way and continually driving him around the bend i mean i think Beatty's really good in the film but there's this one scene where he's got just getting it from all angles in the salon. Um, that's not in a sexual way. Um, <laughs> but they're just like, the women are just coming up to him and they want his attention all the time and he can't get a moment's peace. And you just think, God, this really looks like too much hard work. Is it worth all of it? You know? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. He's um, He's never in control throughout the film. And I like that kind of playing with the trope. Um, of the womanizer and in this he's just kind of piled on too much like his date book is bursting and he can't keep up with all of it but he also is too weak to definitively end it with any of them and like make a decision um which again is basically the plot of what's new pussycat uh just with more political uh subtext so really really um interesting from that regard when it all collapses around him um you know there there are moments where he almost seems relieved that he doesn't have to bother with it anymore um like the scene where he where he's with jill in the house and she's kind of makes him finally confess he the kind of resignedness that he gives it just the tiredness in his voice and his actions is really compelling and really interesting. Yeah, it's clearly somebody that, let's just say, is not the brightest button in the box. Right. You know? Um, But I think for Robert Town to have written this the year after Chinatown, I mean, what, what a run, those two films. I think the approach to humor is, really intelligent some of the comic timing um and just like silent venom that somebody will will give a look to somebody and they just want to murder them or sleep with them um (laughs) i think it's just really really funny and julie christie is hilarious in this film at the party after lester says to george can you make sure she doesn't drink too much (laughs) (laughs) and the look she gives (laughs) I'm laughing just thinking of the look she gives him um, and her reaction to that is uh, it's just funny but I thought the acting was very strong on the whole and um, Jack Warden, brilliant in mm-hmm. this um, as poor Lester you know um, just keeps on saying the wrong things to both uh, his wife and his mistress um, but I think I found Christie's reactions funnier than Lee Grant's Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, Lester is kind of in the same boat, I think, as George in a lot of the scenes. Like, he's just um, let himself get into the situation, getting pulled in both directions and just so tired of it. But 
again not really knowing how to extricate himself and i love the scene they sh- <laughs> i love the scene they share at the end where you know you think it it's going to be you know the typical cuckolded husband um you know taking it out but eventually they just sit down and are like yeah man what a life huh and that's it <laughs> <laughs> yeah I th- and also because he thinks that George is gay, yeah, I kind of like that the film upends that stereotype that the male hairdresser has to be gay, because um, it's not the case. Um, but it, I love that he's just so wonderfully oblivious about everything. And the scene where he goes into the um, into the bathroom and they've got the hair dry and the steam, and he's just like, <laughs> I mean. In the back of his mind, he knows what's going on, yeah. but he won't really confront that. He's just happy to let it go as long as he's um, got Jackie on side. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Julie Christie is so marvelous in this. Um, you know, again, not to give too much away from later parts of uh, this episode, but um, I would rather she have won or been nominated for this than for Darling. Um, because I, I thought she was so much, so hugely a part of why I enjoyed this film so much. Um, and yeah, that look, her looks are great in it. Um, I have to imagine the look she gave Jack Warden would be the look any woman would give if you said to somebody else, make sure she doesn't drink too much. Um, it's just, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how anybody could think that would be a good idea to say that especially in the presence of the person you're talking about but yeah uh, wonderful and i think um goldie horn's actually really good too oh yeah and uh sells that that bit at the end because i i didn't i wasn't expecting um that much emotion um from Jill and George's relationship and the breakdown of it. I wasn't expecting it to be such a fraught scene, but I, I thought they really made it work. And I thought that the scene with George and Jackie on the hill at the end uh, was also unexpectedly moving in a certain way. Um, when the film, you know, mainly goes for all-out comedy, but I thought that the emotional honesty at the end did work too. Yeah, and I I think that that a part of that is because the comedy, unlike the ones in the quote-unquote comedy in Once Is Not Enough, it's not like going for set-up punchline, you know, kind of hackneyed writing. The humor just arises from the chaotic situation, which, uh, you know, another Hal Ashby um, trademark, so I think it really does. So it makes the emotional scenes in the end pay off all the more, uh, because it makes the whole thing seem more real more natural and i think um to move it on to lee grant i think lee grant is good um i love the first line uh oh christ get me a kleenex (laughs) just funny (laughs) (laughs) what an introduction to that character um and I i think she's good i i love the stare of death she gives jackie at the party after she discovers that she's his mistress, Lester's mistress. And a lot of the physical comedy worked for me. I think it's surprising she was singled out in particular, ahead of, 
you know, maybe two better performances by supporting actresses in the film. Yeah. So I, I do find myself asking, why this one? You know? Is it because she's the most salacious and out of control? Possibly, yeah. Um, but I was also surprised, especially since she pretty much disappears from the movie after the uh, election night party. I mean, she doesn't go to the hippie party and she doesn't show up at the end or anything else. Um, so, yeah, I was actually surprised at the end of the film saying that they nominated her and she won. Um, very, it, it seemed kind of strange to me. I don't know. Maybe it's because uh, Goldie Hawn and Julie Christie already had Oscars. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, we could talk about why she won later yeah. on. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's still good. I mean, I don't think she's bad in it at all. Yeah, she's very good. Although, I mean, come on. If you walk in on your um, your fancy man and uh, your daughter, she must have known what was going on and maybe didn't even care. <laughs> that seemed to be the case, yeah. Um, and he, even, um, even George seemed surprised at that. He's like, really? You, you want me to do your hair? You didn't you see what just happened? I mean, but yeah, he was very confused there. <laughs> so we got a few questions. Just a few this week. Just a few, yeah, um, as usual. No, yeah, um, you know, actresses, and of course actresses in the 70s, I think uh, people love them. So yeah, we have a fair amount of questions here. And the first one is um, from Academy Queens. They ask, how do you think Sylvia earned parentheses, a very worthy Oscar nom for the second time in a tight under seven minute role. Well, I think her impact in the movie is undeniable. Um, I think she was a popular person in the industry. Lots of people were calling her a scene stealer after Midnight Cowboy. So I imagine a similar thing happened with this. And that's why voters remembered her. Um, and we often say this, but the, the supporting actress category is where these kinds of performances are supposed to be rewarded. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe for more than seven minutes, but I, she certainly does the most with what she's got. So I I don't... Even though we both ranked her fifth for Midnight Cowboy, we liked that performance and what it did, right? So... yeah. I'd, even though I probably wouldn't nominate her for either performance, I think she's good in both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. Um, yeah, again, I'm not sure that I'd nominate her even for this, even though I like her better in this and see more of a reason to nominate her for this. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. She just had that kind of scene-stealing cachet, and so... When she had another very short but uh, impactful role, uh, voters responded. Yeah. Fritz asks, does Brenda Vaccaro have the worst movie ever nominated in this category? Possibly. Um, I don't have the vast supporting actress knowledge that some of our listeners and uh, some of our former guests have. Um, so I can't say for certain, but 
without having done that legwork, I would say probably. Yep. I would say Anne Hathaway won for a worst movie. Um, I have not seen it. Uh, it it just he just did a made a pig's ear of the whole thing. Honestly, <laughs> it just looked like a mess. Um, Les Misérables, um, but certainly not many worse than Once Is Not Enough. It's it's a one star movie, I think. Yeah, but for sure, yeah. Guillermo asks, um, such a quintessentially 70s lineup and all genuinely supporting, the kind we don't see anymore. I would have nominated Marissa Berenson in Barry Lyndon and Barbara Harris in Nashville. What do you think about them getting spots here? I liked Harris, but I wouldn't have nominated her. Um, And I'll have to defer to you with Marissa Berenson, because I've not yet seen Barry Lyndon, amazingly. Mm Mm-hmm. Should okay. Well, first of all, definitely see it um, sooner rather than later because it's an amazing film. Um, if you get a if it happens to come to a theater as part of like a Kubrick retrospective or something, um, definitely see that. That's where I saw it, and it's just absolutely stunning. Um, but that having having said that, Marissa Berenson is amazing uh, in Barry Lyndon. Um, she has some very emotional. Uh, scenes, a lot of dialogue-free scenes, and um, I can't go into too much detail because I don't want to spoil anything for you or for anyone else who hasn't seen it yet, Um, but I would definitely have nominated her in this category over some of the the ones who did get in. Yeah, she's great. Didn't he spend like a week dressing loads of candles in a scene or something? Ridiculous. Oh, yeah. I mean, all of the scenes are lit only with uh, 18th century technology. So, yeah, only candles um, in every every night scene is all candles. Um, Kubrick was a madman, but the film looks so beautiful. So I think he got it right. Uh, next, uh, we've got a question from Prone to Hyperbole. Uh, was Barbara Harris even campaigned for Nashville? Uh, he says... She really gives uh, the best performance in the film. Um, well, she must have been, right? Because she got the Golden Globe nomination. So I have to imagine she was campaigned pretty heavily too. her and Geraldine Chaplin, um, who also um, got the Golden Globe nomination. Um, so, yeah, I, I have to imagine she was. Yeah, I think it'd be difficult for her to get the Globe nomination without that, honestly. Yeah. Um, we continue with the Nashville line of questioning. Zeta Short asks, why was Geraldine Chaplin not nominated for Nashville? Well, I think it's very difficult to get more than two people nominated in one category for the same film. It, it did happen famously with Tom Jones, but 1963 was a pretty dry year for movies at the Oscars and they didn't have nearly as much choice, I don't think. Whereas in 1975, you have a lot of well-liked films that it would have taken voters to put three or four names on the ballot. And maybe at that point, you kind of wonder, is this too much? Um, but again, judging from Twitter, people don't seem to feel that way. Yeah. Um, no, it, it definitely would have been um, unprecedented um 
to have, I think, any more. I mean, I, no, we had the Tom Jones precedent, but it would have been very difficult. And yeah, as you say, 1975, you had a lot more variety and a lot more choice. Um, why Chaplin wasn't nominated, I think, is actually a pretty good question, because I think she gives a nomination-worthy uh, performance, um, which I suppose segues into our next question. Yeah, so next we've got Sam. Uh, both Sam and James um, asked if this category had been all Nashville women, which other three women should have been nominated? Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting idea, and the idea of a uh, acting category entirely comprised of uh, performances from a single film is an interesting uh, alternate universe to imagine. Although I think if any film could have filled this category, it's this film. Um, I would have nominated, as well as the two that were nominated, Geraldine Chaplin, I definitely would have nominated. Um, I would have nominated Gwen Wells, as well as Suleen. Um, yeah, such a... Oh, she's in for a rough life. She really is. Um, and then I think I would... I think I'd give the fifth spot to Barbara Baxley um, as uh, Lady Pearl, the um, the wife slash whatever of Haven Hamilton. Um I really like her energy in the film, and I really I laughed a lot at her kind of drunken um, soliloquy about the Kennedys uh, midway through the film and her staunch defense of Catholicism. <laughs> um, I had Chaplin and Wells in there too, and then Barbara Harris, because um, I did like her. Um, but Gwen Wells, you don't hear mentioned much, but I thought she was really, really impressive especially in the strip tease scene yeah that was i mean i i mean it's altman of course he's just gonna linger and do the whole thing but i was like wow we're really gonna see everything here um and see her sadly slink off and uh, it was such a hard scene to watch but she plays it so well yeah then daddio asks the opposite basically um, if there was a rule about one nominee per film, who would you choose for Nashville, Tomlin or Blakely? Well, sorry, Daddio, we can't reveal our rankings just yet, but they will be coming up in the next few minutes. Um, but what I wanted to say is, is there a basis for having this such a rule in your eyes? Hmm. Interesting. Um, I would say in a perfect world, no, um, because I like the idea of multiple uh, actors and actresses in lead slash supporting roles having the chance to be nominated together. Um, like, I don't think I'd want to live in a world where both Jesse Plemons and Cody Smith McPhee couldn't be nominated for Power of the Dog. And I would worry that if there was a rule like this, that studios would um, stop having these kind of multiple strong supporting roles in favor of kind of throwing the weight behind one in the hopes of Oscar recognition. Um, so 
yeah, I, I don't know if I'd um I don't know if I'd like to see a rule like that. I think the only argument for that rule would be that you'd probably get more films nominated overall. Um and it wouldn't all be mm. from best picture nominees filling out the acting categories, but at the same time mm-hmm. I kind of agree that if there's two performances that are amazing, they should be able to be nominated with each other. Mm-hmm. Maybe set the cap at two per category so you don't get a Tom Jones situation. Yeah, no, maybe. Um, also, Well, also, what do you think about you can't be nominated in both lead and supporting? Should they fix that? Like for the same performance, like a Barry Fitzgerald kind of thing? Yeah. Uh, I think that would be pretty chaotic. (laughs) (laughs) Anarchy. (laughs) Yeah. No, I I, I like the rule that you have to be one or the other. Um, Sure, it results in category fraud, but uh, the alternative, um, I think, would be uh, just a a madhouse, which, I don't know, maybe that's the kind of manic energy that the Oscars need. Maybe if this Twitter campaign fails this year, they'll explore that as a possible shot in the arm. Yeah. Well, if Cinderella wins, I don't think they'll be doing it again. <laughs> then in that case, I'll vote for it. <laughs> um, Tweet Davison asks, was Nashville close to receiving any further nominations in this category? And same question for Shampoo. Was there any broad support for a Goldie Hawn nomination? Um, I bet if there was going to be another nomination from Shampoo, it would have been Julie Christie. Um, but Goldie Hawn is great, and I have to imagine um, she her name was mentioned. Uh, she might have even been close. Um, and I don't know if Nashville was close. I mean, it must have been close to receiving maybe a different nomination but maybe not another nomination yeah i mean it is a bit of a slap in the face to geraldine chaplin that that they nominated sylvia miles instead in a way because (laughs) you know they clearly more people would have seen nashville um than the other movie but yeah i don't I, i mean i've already said i don't know why judy christie wasn't nominated for shampoo um she should have been and i think she probably was close to being yeah uh andrew asks does louise fletcher belong here instead of in lead and if so where would you rank her in this lineup yes she does belong in this category for me and i would rank her third okay um i not sure i would put her in this category because she is unquestionably the lead actress of one flow of the cuckoo's nest and her character does drive the plot forward in a lot of ways and she is um a very very important role not just i I would say she's a lead um but if she was in this uh performance i'm sorry in this uh lineup i would probably rank her third as well okay um, James asks, was there ever any chance of Tina Turner making it in for Tommy? Or is that just wishful thinking slash 
delusion. Um, I would love to live in a world where the Acid Queen was nominated for an <laughs> Academy Award. Um, I can't, I mean, it's not completely out of the realm of possibility since Anne Margaret did get a Best Actress nomination for the film. But um, yeah, I, I don't think it was a, I don't think it was a real chance of Tina Turner getting in, unfortunately. I think she might have had an outside shot, but maybe more screen time required. Um, unless you're Sylvia Miles and don't seem to need that. But <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, very few actresses were Sylvia Miles. <laughs> um, and finally, and a segue into the next uh, segment of the show... The pre-Best Supporting Actress winners were all varied. Ronnie Blakely won the National Board of Review, Brenda Baccaro won the Golden Globe, and Lily Tomlin won the National Society of Film Critics. What do you think the overall reason was that Lee Grant triumphed on Oscar night? And uh, Sorry, that was from CK. I didn't mention that. But um, that is our next uh, segment, which is why did Lee Grant win this Oscar, and uh, was it a close one? Well, we haven't mentioned this, but Lee Grant uh, was blacklisted uh, back in the day when uh, Edward Dimitrick gave her husband's name to the House and American Activities Committee. Um, mm-hmm. And he actually directed the original of Farewell, My Lovely, right? All right. Yep. So mm-hmm. Lee Grant won an Oscar in this year and... Uh, there was a terrible remake of your movie, so I'm, I'm sure he wasn't a, a happy chappy. <laughs> um, but I think once once she um, once that ended, she got she got three further nominations. She was nominated very early on for Detective Story. Um, yep. So I think there was a lot. I think there was a lot of sympathy for her in that sense. Um, and she'd also worked with a lot of actors by that point. I think she went to television for a bit. Um, and this was her third nomination, so the overdue factor was most in favour of her than anybody else nominated. So in terms of how close it was, although Brenda Vaccaro won the Globe, I don't see that being a possibility uh, because that's only 80 people. I think... Yeah. I don't think it was a runaway victory, but I think it was more comfortable than we think and maybe... Maybe Renee Blakely, second there. Yeah, I would agree. Um, a combination of a good performance in a acclaimed film and uh, kind of being overdue and also kind of, hey, sorry about the whole blacklisting thing um, as well. Uh, so thanks to everyone for your, your questions. Yeah, those are great. Um, so how about snubs other than the ones we've already uh, talked about? There's nobody I'd want to mention that deserved um, a nomination, but close to a nomination, maybe Lois Nettleton in The Man in the Glass Booth, um, given mm. Maximilian Schell's nomination. I think she plays his lawyer in that, so um, maybe potential there. Yeah, Maybe. Um, and I, um, outside of the questions we got, I was going to mention Marissa Berenson uh, in Barry Lyndon, I think, uh, definitely should have been 
amongst these nominees. So I'm glad to see other people agree with me. Yeah, and uh, she was also talked up for Cabaret as well, wasn't she? And didn't get the nomination for that either. Yeah. Yeah. So any wider observations on the year of 1975? It was, of course, um, One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest's year. Uh, It was the first film since It Happened One Night to Sweep the Top Five. Um, and the first, also the first film since then to win both lead acting awards, which of course then started happening almost every year for the rest of the 70s. Yeah. Well, I wanted to mention the Best Actress race because it's a very atypical year. And um, there's actually a New York Times article where it listed about 20 women and said, you know, any of these could be nominated. It was so, you know, the, the race was so fractured um, and all of the nominees were in films that were pretty, apart from um, Louise Fletcher, who had a, probably the easiest ride anyone's ever had to an Oscar, to be honest. Um, the, the other nominees were all in really odd films. You've got um, Hester Street, um, you've got Hedda, um, Tommy, which got extra nominations too so Mm -hmm. really strange year in that category and of course Isabella Gianni who probably should have won yeah would have loved to see that Um, well maybe we will get to this category in a future episode because uh, somewhat um, somewhat atypically there's no overlap between supporting actress and actress this year Mm. I didn't think of that We'll save the opinions for then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, not a lot of crossover between the actress and actor categories other than Cuckoo's Nest and Shampoo. Um, they're all uh, they're all distinct. It's interesting. Have you seen the um, the video of Spielberg's reaction to being snubbed? Um, for no. Oh, you you have to watch it. Um, basically there's this video of the, them announcing the best director nominations and Spielberg's like oh, they they dropped me for Fellini or something he's, he says in there he's, he's like he's well disappointed he's not angry but he's, you can tell he's really disappointed mm. I have to seek that out yeah uh, Jaws one of the uh, list of I think about 15 films in history that have won all of their nominations except for best picture so Wow. Came so close. And of course, Barry Lyndon um, was Kubrick's most successful film in terms of Oscars. It got four wins this year. Uh, it was only behind Cuckoo's Nest. All craft wins, yeah? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Richly deserved, but yeah. So is it time to rank these nominees? Let's do it. Yeah. Right. Um, I've only decided on this ranking today. It wasn't particularly easy, but uh, number five, I've got Sylvia Miles. I feel really bad because I put her fifth on both years, but I feel like even though what she was doing was great, there wasn't a whole lot of it. Um, number four, I've got Lee Grant. I think she could have done with more as well, more screen time. And 
there are two better performances by actresses in the same movie. Yeah. Number three, I've got Brenda Vaccaro because I think she does the most with what she has. Um, really a breath of fresh air for that film and had to, you know, share the um, share a room with some terrible actors in it as well. And number two, I've got Lily Tomlin. I thought she was gave a lovely characterization, but I can't really see beyond Ronnie Blakely and um, how heartbreaking she was. Mm-hmm. Well, my ranking is uh, similar, but a few uh, swapped spots. I've actually got Lee Grant at number five, um, simply because, again, like I mentioned, she's plays no role at all in the last act of the film. Um, and yeah, there's just two better supporting actress performances that uh, I think she kind of took the spot from, particularly um, Julie Christie. I've got Sylvia Miles at number four, because uh, she, with very little screen time, at least makes an impact uh, in the film in a way that I think Lee Grant really didn't, despite it being a very good performance. Uh, I've got Lily Tomlin at number three and Brenda Beccaro at number two uh, because that brush of fresh, breath of fresh air, uh, I guess, just hit me uh, harder and kind of blew her a little higher in the ranking. Um, I, I just really feel like she was having fun with it in a way that a lot of the actors weren't, um, which I think in a movie like Once is Not Enough, if you're not having fun, then you're just wasting your time. And... Number one, yeah, Ronnie Blakely, um, and it wasn't close for me. She was uh, right at the top from almost from the moment she was on screen, but she just gives such an amazing, touching performance that, yeah, it's an easy number one for me. Yeah, I think what you said about Brenda Vaccaro's right, if she wasn't in the movie, it would have just been so dull. Yeah. Uh, we have a website. It's categoricallyosis.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at categoricallyo. Leave us a review if you liked this episode. What we got next week? Next week, we are moving back into the 21st century. Um, 2007 exact. Uh, best Picture. The nominees that year were Atonement, Juno, Michael Clayton, There Will Be Blood, and the winner, No Country for Old Men. I think uh, this also considered to be one of the more strong uh, years for Best Picture. Definitely. I'm looking forward to rewatching all of these. Um, it's a great lineup. Definitely. So we'll be back with a new episode next week. See you then.
touch my life for